Welcome back to the March Mad Men podcast. This is part two of our loving autopsy of Demian Rugna's When Evil Lurks. Part one was a non-spoiler discussion, but the gloves are off for this one. Beware. And so, yes, with this seeming victory, uh, everyone goes home. Oh, one of the subtle things that I don't, I haven't seen anyone talk about, but I think is probably important um, in terms of like um, summaries of this movie. There's bullets on the floor when uh, Ruiz goes to shoot Uriel. He, uh, whether it's his bullets or, or I don't know, but like there's bullets left there, and for some reason Jaime takes the bullets. And so I think of that as being, and he looks at them later, and there's even one at the very end. And when we're talking about how this infection uh, continues, because, you know, like obviously we see a scene where that proves even your clothes will be infected and could infect others. But I, I think the bullets are one of the things that carries over. I think it's a shotgun shell, actually. But yeah, the ammunition is something that represents. Uh, an unnoticed uh, way that this plague is is carried along by the characters because I don't know why Jaime brings them, but he he takes the bullets from Maria Elena's place and has them in their house the the rest of the movie. It's both representative of the class stuff we've been talking about that Jaime can't turn down free bullets <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And also, like, the most Fredo thing you could possibly do. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, right. If, like, if that, what, well, especially, like, once they get out on the road and they get the they get the phone call scene and some of that kind of stuff, like, if all that shit happens because he just grabbed his bullets, then, again, fucking Fredo, right? Yeah. I mean, I think of Jaime is, like, okay, when he, his character in, um, terrified is much more sort of relatable. This guy is a sort of a slack jawed goofball. It's kind of how I see him, even though like, apparently he's the Lothario of the family. Like he's very a romantic and he banged, um, you know, our cleaner lady and, you know, she's probably, you know, in her forties and he was in his twenties or whatever. He's the weaker of the two brothers, I think. Is that safe to say? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I, okay. it's, it's, it seems, he seems the weaker and he, he certainly seems to, he's subservient to his brother. He assumes that Pedro knows what's best in roughly the way that Fredo uh, uh, thought that Michael knew that. I'm sorry. I keep coming back to that just because. Uh, well, the, uh, one, I, the, the problem I have with that is he doesn't actively betray him. Does he? Does he? <laughs> also, when you guys are calling me an idiot, I say when you guys were telling me dumb, I should have been like, no, I'm not dumb, I'm smart. <laughs> One of the things that I read recently was if he had an affair with the ex-wife, is it possible that one of the kids that he's going after is his own, right? All right, yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves, but that's something to maybe think about. So after that, we get Ruiz and his wife, and you know they're kind of decompressing from all of this. And she goes out to deal with the goats, 
And apparently my interpretation, and you guys, you know, tell me if you agree or not, I'm not totally sure about this, but there was a goat that they, that they thought was acting weird before and they maybe killed it or, or something because it was threatening in some way. And now she's like, it's back. Like the, this goat is back and that's what freaks her out. And then Ruiz runs out there and they scare off all the other goats. And then this, yes, this one goat like remains behind and is like not afraid of, of their noise and their gun and everything. And he actually comes up and like is almost begging Ruiz to, to blow his head off by pressing his forehead up against the barrel of the shotgun. Right. And meanwhile, the wife is saying, please, you know, you, you know, better basically don't do it. Don't, don't pull that trigger. And I actually believe that he wasn't going to pull the trigger as tempted as he is because he knows this goat is evil because of whatever history they have with this goat. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's acting creepy as fuck. I mean, I want to definitely emphasize that, but I don't think he would, but then it like, makes this like loud, abrupt bleat. And I think he just pulls the trigger almost like, uh, accidentally or yeah. instinctively. The, the goat kind of forces his hand. And again, we establish things that, that then pay off. Why do these guys not go back for the body? Because we saw how gross it was to put him in the truck in the first place. And why does he get out the gun anyways and, and threaten the goat that leads to his demise? Well, we established that like he's quick to go for his guns Yep. Even though he is aware of this stuff, he knows the rules. But you know, I, we have to almost wonder if, like, he wishes he could just shoot the problem away. <laughs> and, yes, um, and we, we do find out in the scene that no, he will not live deliciously. <laughs> he will not enjoy the taste of butter or have a pretty dress. Um, That's a, a a bitch reference for any of you who the bitch, yeah. And uh, I. And I, I, I flat out love this scene. Apparently, so does marketing because uh, an image from the scene becomes the one sheet. Yes, <laughs> it's so fucking yes. cool. I don't know and if the goat's does, in the shot, but the the woman with the axe definitely is. Yes, right. But I mean, it it immediately establishes like the true threat of what's going on here, and also we uh, between the, the you know the the behavior of the goat uh, very closely mirrors the the behavior of Uriel. So it's like uh, we, we have this kind of like this sinister arrogance that we expect from demons. Uh, like, well, and they're, they're, they're basically egging you on, like, yeah. kill me. That's all I want, baby. Yeah. That's all I yeah, want. Yeah. 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 And, and like it, what's interesting is like if the demons were a little smarter, they wouldn't open their mouths. They would, Like Urien right. would just be like, yeah, it would just lie there and let him shoot him. But I mean, perhaps that's the weakness of the demons is like they love taunting humanity. They love being this arrogant and be like, yeah, let's do it, bro. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that the, the, the demons don't come off as being like truly Machiavellian. Like they're they're smart, but they're not like this isn't the always optimal way to play your hand. Yeah, um, they're, they're not like um, – they're not Brad Dourif in Exorcist Three. They're a little bit more like Deadites, where like uh, you right. know, they're, they're they're a little bit more like in the moment. <laughs> there is like a certain like they're gaming them. There's a little bit, but it, like we're not talking about like you know master chess players. Yeah, like, they're uh, not 
they're not puppeteers and every human being is just like being manipulated. Um, yeah, there, there's like a kind of that element of back to the exorcist really where they're cool and sadistic and they know enough about you to hurt you, but they're not there. I wouldn't say they're playing checkers, but they're not Gary Kasparov either. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. One of the notes that I have is what identified the goat to the wife. And I had not the, the story you painted of this being a goat that had been, you know, aggressive or something. I did, what evidence supports that? Or like, how did you, how did you sort of come up with that? Because I didn't see that in there. I don't think that the, the dialogue is explicit about it, but I think the impression, like whatever she says is like, it's that goat it's back or, or something along those lines. Right. So like they already know this goat, whether or not like it had been dead or, but, but the reason I say that it was dead was the mythology of the movie is that these animals are the first to be affected, right? Animals it, it are, dri- it drives the animals mad first. They say, yes, animals yes. Mad, animals, children, adults. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And we see the child later return after it had, you know, been killed, right? The little girl. So I kind of say, like, the rules that we learn later tell us that this goat that they may have have killed because it went nuts um, could just show up again, right? Yeah. That's, no, that's, that's how that makes I get good sense. That makes good sense. But also just... I just want to say I love the idea of your, you know, your wife runs in and goes, it's that goat. It's back. <laughs> what? Yeah. What do you mean it's that goat? Yeah. Okay. It's that goat. And so. and so this is probably the first great scene in the film. Like, I think we're already beyond on board, but this is the scene where you're like, holy shit. Yes, we have a, a great horror movie yeah. here. Yeah. I agree with uh, that. Yeah. yeah. What happens is he he flinches, he pulls the trigger, and instantly, like my interpretation is, by killing, by releasing the demon uh, from the goat, it jumps right into his wife. She kills him with one shot with the axe. He drops, and then um, she has a much, much, much nastier means of of suicide which is she just starts hitting herself right in the forehead with this axe and it takes yeah four or five shots it's so horrible it it, it really is brutal as she drops as well and the demon has had its way with these two i mean i i certainly considered that interpretation john but watching it the second time i kind of felt more that as soon as he pulled the trigger, she knew that they were doomed. I don't know if it was like if the demon, as you said, if the, if the, the demon sort of leaped into her and she did that, or if it was more like murder suicide. This was going to be this was going to be better than the alternative. I, oh, interesting. I disagree with that. Yeah. I disagree with that for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is. Hope springs eternal, right? Like in our whole theory that this has been somewhat in abeyance or, you know, it's in the cities or whatever, like 
for her to feel like that nihilistic about him just shooting the goat, I, I don't know that I would I would buy that. Like, I think she would take her chances. Like, let's see what happens. You know, maybe I'll be okay. Maybe my kid will be okay. She got the axe before he shot the goat. She went and got the axe out of the tree stump. She wanted to, if you're going to kill the goat, don't shoot it. Like there's, there is some, it's not great to kill the goat with an ax, but I think there is the concept that if you kill, if you're going to kill the goat, kill it with the ax, not the, not the gun. That's, that was my reading. I think there might be a case to be made that she is not possessed when she commits the murder suicide, that she's cauterizing the wound with this very extreme choice. Maybe, uh, but oh, you know, in, in, in a weird kind of a way, oh boy, does that really up the ante of the evil though? Where it's just like it's better to like murder my husband and myself than to let <laughs> whatever's going to happen. Yeah, but none of the other characters behave that way. Like that would that yeah, would that would yeah. reflect some special insight on her part. Yeah, that I I would say that is true because uh, if that you know. Either, either she is a willpower of steel or else it would make more sense for a protagonist to like go to a sex wise place and like murder the whole family, you know, lest that it spread to the rest of the city, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think that this scene, its purpose in Rugna's mind is more to show the progression. Like if yeah. you do this kind of thing, the evil will immediately do X, Y, and Z, which is exactly what happens with Pedro's family in, yeah, the, in yeah. the subsequent sequences. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think, I, I, I think I Evil's got the wheel here, guys. I think Evil's got the wheel. I agree with that, but I do like the nihilistic idea of like, oh, shit, you've, you've done a thing. We have to murder each other now. I think it's pretty rad. I think that's a different but, movie, though. Well, John, John, I'm just going to say this. I will smash myself in the face with a hatchet before I admit that you're right. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. And uh, as long as we can get video of that. (laughs) Yeah. That's production value, baby. Okay. (laughs) That's how you get this podcast on the map. That that would probably make a mark. (laughs) (laughs) In more ways than one. So after that incredible, incredible sequence, I think we come back to Pedro, which would which would make sense. They hear from the little boy. Yes, the little boy shows up. Uh, I don't think we've talked about him that much, but um, the neighbor, Maria Elena's son, the youngest son, shows up and says, my mom's missing and Ruiz is dead. Is, is that right? Does that sound... Um, yeah. Accurate. Unfortunately, yeah, the, the, the kid comes to her door and is asking for shelter and help. And on the one hand, this is exactly the cards you want to play if you're a demon. And uh, our characters are a little savvy to it, which I liked a lot. But it's a good enough of a cover story that you can't immediately be like, aha, demon, I got you. But the characters are. You know, they're sharp enough to be like, okay, let's trust but verify. (laughs) I think it's noteworthy that Pedro, the dad, is the one who is like, no, like, you can stay. Give me your gun. Right? Right. Because the kid's got a gun. And I have this note that the kid's gun is missing a bullet. 
because when he gets the gun, he opens the chamber and checks it, and there's a bullet missing. And I think that that was the bullet that went into Mom. Well, I mean, they heard six shots the first night, and we will learn that he killed the cleaner. Yeah. And we will also learn that he ate his mom. So I'm not sure how all of that uh, <laughs> comes together. <laughs> I was saying, well, I think he, he killed mom and then ate her. Because I don't think it's been too long. He would right. have reloaded the gun since the cleaner. But right. I just yeah. thought it, it, yeah. it seemed yeah. noteworthy that the gun, you know, held six bullets and only had five in it. Yeah. He, he well, the only cap, thing I will say to that. He put then ate the body, yeah. The only thing I will say to that is we made a big deal out about hearing gunshots in the woods the first night, but we didn't hear one gunshot like this night where he would have shot his mother, but maybe they're farther enough away that they wouldn't have heard that, that gunshot if it was fired. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, Maria Elena's house is like farther away than like, uh, you know, the, the cleaner was shot on the way to her place. So I, yes. I mean, it is presumably like a shot far enough away. They, uh, I, especially if they're like doing other stuff. And what's clear to me is that John will stop at nothing to discredit any theories that I've <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying that it's like there, there, there's a non there, there's a non 0% chance that he kills mom after late they take Uriel and leave because Uriel is already summoning help in the form of the kid in the road. And, and, uh, and his little brother has already killed the cleaner. So sure. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, yeah, uh, uh, we, we uh, so while they're on this long trip, for all we know, Maria Elena is getting eaten. That's when she meets her demise. Mm-hmm. My only other comment to that would be, like, it seems kind of kind for these evil things to actually just, like, you know, execute her with a bullet. Like, that seems almost too, she's getting off easy, but, but yeah, who knows? Well, he's uh, a kid, so he, he has to, and she's still an adult, so... He has to. Right. I, I given the opportunity, I'm sure he would have tortured her in some way. But I mean, she's still an adult. You know, he needs to put a bullet in her. But don't for, don't forget, he cut the student half. He cut yeah. it in half. John, John is fine. I'm just gonna. This is my notes. I'm just gonna throw them away. Because <laughs> undermine whatever I, I say. Symbolically, you should burn them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think you should just uh, put it at the at the top of them stupid things that Vic thought of, and look at that every day <laughs> when you wake up in the morning. Good synopsises are are sort of hard to find on a movie um, this new, but basically, yeah, the they they agree. Pedro like has the decency. Like again, we're sort of I think to this point, playing him as a somewhat traditional hero, like decency and, and rationality and fortitude are, are what we're getting from Pedro up to this point. Mm-hmm. And he says, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, you can stay in the stable. He gives the kid a place to stay. And then we forget about him for a while, the kid, because um, Jaime and Pedro run off to town because at this point, knowing that, Ruiz is dead. It's like, yeah, fuck this. We're out of here. So yeah. they're going to get the kids and, and run. I, I, I will also say that the sequence with the ex-wife is really well written and acted. It is exactly – I mean, we're on his side because we know that 
there's this disaster looming and he is acting in a manner of like, I want to save my children, but we understand why the ex-wife is very recalcitrant you know, about letting this happen. And uh, even though she like, there's an air, there's an edge of hysteria to her, like where you get why they're divorced in the first place. Like she's not perfect, but it's not like she's being kooky crazy. We understand, like, it's one of those deliciously lit-written scenes that you find in any genre, drama, what have you, where everyone is a version of right. Everyone makes sense. Or uh, at least a version of real. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, uh, we understand why she doesn't want her ex-husband to, like, show up and just grab the kids and drive off. We fully get why she's going to stand in the way of that. But and it's we only see him as a protagonist because we have been with him in this journey up until now. We know that the danger is real. But if you were to eliminate those scenes and open the movie with the scene where the ex-husband shows up and he's just like, "Hey, there's demonic things are coming, and I need to take the kids and throw them in the truck and drive away," we would fully be on her side. It bespeaks the writing and the acting where like he's a little unhinged she's a little unhinged like we get that she's a little uh my read on it is this character she is not better than him like yes he's had his problems but she's not an amazing like highly evolved person yeah she she doesn't come across as like anybody that like i'm not less like oh it's too bad that that marriage failed it's like no no it's like i I, it's like sometimes you're running over it's like oh yeah that's why they're divorced Yeah, and the new guy's kind of a chucklehead, but, you know, like, they're all just sort of flawed, fucked up people realizing that each other are flawed and fucked up, and they don't take each other seriously. Yeah, but, I mean, it's like the only reason that we're on our protagonist's side is because we've been on the journey with him, and that's just really smart writing. Like, we understand why she stands in the way of this occurring. We're that much more on his side because we understand her thought process in the scenario. So it's like, I mean, how is he going to make this happen? I mean, there's another gear where he gets violent and like, you know, beats him up or kills him and take, you know, what are you going to do to save your children? And if the answer is anything, it's like, well, uh, if I know that it's either I take my children and leave or else I leave them here and they're going to get possessed and die you know, then you're going to get really fucking extreme, right? So it's like we don't get to that place where, like, he gets violent with them. But uh, in, in a weird kind of way, that like, the dog saves him from having to shift up to that next gear. But, oh, boy, I mean... Yeah, it's not his kid that the dog eats. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I'm, I'm just saying it's just like, uh, there, there's, like, a, like a one-act play version of this scene, you know, where like no one knows anything what's going on. Like everyone is 100 percent convinced that they are right, and it's like we don't know which way it's going to go. The other thing that I think plays out in this scene is the world building. That you see that these guys are like, not only are we going to leave and go to the city, we're mm-hmm. going to go to the city. We're going to get mom. We're going to get my kids. Yeah, and we're going to go. And like, if I can get my ex-wife to leave too, great. You start to understand that. This idea of someone being rotten and the the ripple effects that that can have yeah. are apocalyptic. It's the security guard in the stand 
who hears that the virus has gotten out and runs and grabs his kids and gets in the car and runs to fucking, you know, Austin or whatever. He's reacting with that level of fear that they both are reacting with that level of fear. And but the other thing, to your point, Mike, the other thing that comes out in the scene is that the wife has a restraining order on him. So we are on his side. But through the course of this scene, Mm -hmm. we learn more and more about this guy and what the cops were talking about, you know, when they said, ah, you're going to have a hard time again. You start to learn more and more. In fact, she says something like you plugged the heater outtake, which makes me think that. So this is the he tried to kill himself and uh, at least one of his kids at some point. Right. Presumably the autistic one. Presumably the autistic one. I mean, uh, so of course she's not going to let this guy take the kids and run off with them, even though we as the audience know that in in this very specific scenario, he's in the right. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of necessary to have that ambiguity because we are in a world where it's not like we can just say – you must be a lunatic. No, she knows this shit is real, presumably. Mm-hmm. No, it's been going on for decades. Sure. But we need that distrust in him as an individual to create the lack of acceptance of, of his version of what, what they need to do. It's like, yeah, I know all of this crazy shit has happened with possessions and, you know, rotten and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't trust you to tell me that that's happening right now. Yeah. And, and that's why we need that backstory. I, for all and, she knows, that it, it's like he's using the mythology of this uh, as a ploy to steal the children. And combined with what we talked about before, when was the last time this happened? How often does it happen? Right. Everyone yeah. seems deeply skeptical of him just based on what's happening in the world at this point. And so it, it, that all winds together into the scene, as you said, Mike, that there is – distrust on her part because of what he's done in the past. Mm-hmm. Everyone is distrustful because maybe they haven't seen a rotten. Nobody's nobody in this movie, I think has ever seen a rotten one until we get to Myrta. There's just layers of distrust that build up into this scene that culminates with the fucking dog running off. I know. Water, and I, I, I will have to say throughout, throughout this wonderfully written and performed and directed scene, in which it's just human beings talking about really normal human being stuff, exes dealing with children and, you know, X, Y, Z, and we have huge uh, stakes, the entire thing. The camera keeps coming back to the girl and the dog, and it's like, it's so great. It's such a wonderful burning wick, because you know... You know that you're looking at that fucking dog for a reason. It's like, <laughs> I think if we counted it, it's like six shots. Like it's they come so back to good. the dog six times. It's I not do it. that many. It, it, it's it, it's up there with the birds on the on the jungle gym. You know, it's so great. And it's so wonderful. You have, yeah. What you have and the birds, the movie, in the, the course Hitchcock. of all this stuff. Yeah. In the course of all this stuff. You have Pedro stripping down butt naked. (laughs) Well, that's when the ex-wife sees him. She walks in and it's his her ex like naked. Like that's that's the way that she's um, caught up to speed on this situation. (laughs) I know. I I, I love that. I that this film has these kind of tildes of dark comedy running through the entire thing. You know, the entire thing with um, Reese. 
getting the the guy into the truck. You know, she walks in like her ex husband is like naked in the middle of her fucking living room. It's like what the fuck. <laughs> and yeah, right. so at once you you understand her perspective. He's yeah. insane, right? Yeah, yeah. But then you see that he's like, no, 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 no. you're not listening. We need to burn these clothes. And then you see the dog sniffing around the clothes and you understand oh, yes. that he, yeah. he's right and it all makes sense. But there's so much drama between them know, that they can't see through it to to what the truth of it is. It's so good. And and he knows that they're that they are on a really limited time. Like you have to take like this really big dramatic thing and be like and compress it in like two minutes. We have to get on the road right now. Right now. Right the fuck now, or else we're all dead. It's a so, slow motion car crash, is what this sequence so is. Fucking crazy. Because we know, oh no, oh no, we know. Yeah. Like the foreboding is building. Oh, dude, I and the payoff yeah. is huge. It's so masterfully crafted. Yes, the infection carries with Pedro in his clothes. The dog smells it. The dog attacks the kid, and then. The boyfriend runs to search for the kid, and, and everything sort of falls apart. Did Pedro bring the infection to this town? If he had not come here, would all these people have been safe? I think so. Yeah, I, 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 he, he's kind of a typhoid Mary to a certain degree. But you also imagine it's just like I mean, he under. I, I think he understands the risks. He's just willing to sacrifice everybody else at, at a shot of saving his children. Probably what would have happened was if he didn't immediately make Uriel uh, give birth to the demon the way that he ultimately does, eventually those kids were going to shepherd this thing through its birth process. And when they do, and when like the at the end of the movie, when all the kids head out with their leader and master, that that town was going to go down. And then the kids and the family and the wife and the, the new husband, they were all fucked. This just accelerated the process. Let's at least briefly comment on the individual staging of this incredible dog chew toy sequence with this girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, so, I, so I, good. And the dog attack is fantastic. You know what? The, the closest analogy I could come up with was Samuel L. Jackson getting eaten by the shark in um, Deep Blue Sea. It's such a jump scare. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though but they've been he, like priming us for 10 seconds, 15 yeah, seconds. Yeah, but in a movie that's largely devoid of jump scares. Like that's not the game this movie's playing. But if you can really see he's like, I got one. I got one, yep. and I'm going to fucking get you. The horrific wrongness of it. I, I did see an interview with him where he said, I don't have children, and they actually kind of creep me out. <laughs> so not, that's I'll like some what, small insight. <laughs> if you've seen Terrified, this is not a man who's afraid to kill children in his movie. Right. The interviewer was sort of prompting him with this, but obviously it's true. You want a no-holds-barred kind of quality to horror movies where nobody's safe. I mean, I think that's just integral to any sense of real suspense or concern about characters. And, uh, yeah, like being willing to threaten and, and, and hurt children just tells you the gloves are off. No one has hero armor in this movie. The new husband, the dad of this youngest daughter who just got mauled by the dog, races out in a car after 
the dog who ran off with the kid in its jaws and he's you know wanting to kill it and with pedro a, again with, with a gun right with right gun. yeah yeah with a gun with, with a gun pedro which, begs him not to shoot the dog yeah at this stage pedro is still kind of you know making some right decisions or at least knowing what they should be doing and uh, to no avail in vain he tries to convince this guy not to do that but at least his heart is in the right place and he knows what to do. And he, you know, encounters the police. And again, they brush him off when when he runs up to them. And then he I guess he he gets the tail end of we the audience gets the tail end of the father finds the dog and and does, in fact, kill it, though. Um, to all you dog lovers, we don't see anything on screen. That you don't <laughs> will do some Fucked up shit to kids, but the dog—that shit happens off screen. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he knows what will really hurt his yeah. box office. So, <laughs> meanwhile, and this is one of my like low-key favorite things about the movie is the little girl shows up perfectly fine back at the house. And the mother is overjoyed, Sabrina, and the little girl's all smiles, and everything's great. And the little girl just kind of says, Daddy's about to kill you. She says something along those lines. Mom's like, what? What? Like, and, and not really getting it. And then, yeah, sure enough, because that's the way this infection works— now that he's killed the dog, the dad just drives the car right through mom. And I, I, I don't know if he kills the little girl. No, no. After, yeah, we see her jumping around clapping and happy. And yeah, it's so fucked up. It's so awesome. Pedro pulling away after the truck crashes into his ex-wife and you see the little girl dancing. And that, it, to me, is one of the most horrifying images in this movie. The other thing that's unfolding in all of this is that we are really getting an understanding of Pedro's autistic son. He's got to haul him out of bed. This is a kid who can't really walk right, uh, yeah, as yeah. far as I can tell. Understanding that that dynamic and that relationship and his specific issues and stuff. And you're, you're just it's you're you're dropping that into the middle of what is already chaotic and Fucked beyond belief. And it's like, yeah. oh, by the way, mm-hmm. here's a kid who can't communicate. Right, yeah. You have to save. Yeah, just the the simple logistical challenge of having a kid in that condition that you're trying to evacuate in this situation. Yeah. It's so stressful. And, I mean, under and, the best of conditions, it would still be a job. But you have that wonderful moment because the whole thing is the stepdad is off looking for the little girl. And yeah. the dad just waits like, we gotta go. We mm-hmm. can't take my car. Oh, no, uh, brother's got the car. He's like, so I need, we need to take your mom's car. Where are the keys? He can't find the keys, and the smallest kid doesn't know where the keys are. He has to kind of trick the autistic kid into telling him where the keys are. He uses the ice cream to do yes. that. Yes. The apple, we're gonna get some apple ice cream. And the kid, and that's, and then he finds them in this basket, kind of up in the thing where they, like, literally, he's standing next to it. But it, it's another example of where you just add this whole other level of tension. It's the equivalent of being in the car and trying to get it to start. Can't leave until we get the keys, but we need the keys 
right fucking now. Right, yeah, yeah. And the only kid who knows where they are doesn't talk. And then he just kind of like he points up at this shelf, mm-hmm. this high yeah. shelf where the keys are. He drives away with his own two kids, knowing that his ex-wife just got plowed into a wall. I know. I mean, it bespeaks like the level of panic. It's like, yeah, I mean, there was a flood coming. The yeah. flood is coming. We have to get the yeah. fuck out of here right now. Right fucking now. I, I should say the the apple ice cream that that has got to be like a popular Argentinian treat because they <laughs> yeah. they tag on that a lot. But it's ir- they, it's weird because it's green in the end, so it must be like a Granny Smith apple. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's delicious. I, I it's probably just like a very specific thing to hang on uh, the autistic son. They just really love this very specific flavor of ice cream. I don't think I've ever had an apple ice cream. No. Which is weird because I don't have either. But that little girl is so fucking great because, like, she's just, like, gleeful without, like, being over the top evil. Yeah. Again, like, uh, these demons are, are, they're closer to deadites. Yeah. Where they're just kind of in the moment. Like, they're not, like, super crafty Asmodeus types. Like, they're, uh, they're just having fun. And the staging of, of the, like, the impact of the, of the car hitting the mom and everything, like, all the practical effects in this movie are so fucking on point. I would really love Nothing looks to, cheesy at all. I, I, I straight thought I would really love for the next Evil Dead film to be made by Rugna. I think Rugna would fucking slug it out of the park. Hollywood needs to start thinking of, like, what are we going to do with this guy? On a macro level, one of the thoughts I had watching this was that Rugna likes to come up with a very broad concept where whatever fucked up thing comes into his head, he can make the it accommodate within the within the the structure of the story. Like that's uh, this and terrified. I feel like that's sort of the the idea is like yes, there are rules and there's you know there's there's kind of an umbrella structure, but like it's basically like whatever the fuck comes into my head. I want to I want a, a dog to eat a curl. I want. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it is, he wants this very broad palette that he can paint with. There is another really kind of profound connection, I feel like, between this film and Terrified that we're getting ready to get to. Now our our characters are on their way to uh, Mirta, right? And I what one of the things that as they, they sort of get there really drew my attention as a parallel to Terrified is the role of experts and the role of their tools. We talked a lot when we talked about Terrified about all the contraptions that they get out when they get to the house and how completely overwhelmed they get very quickly in the face of these supernatural components. And also how sort of inexplicable all of their their tools are. Like they have all these machines, I don't know what any of them do, uh, none of them really seem to make much of a difference. Maybe they point in the direction of the thing. And I just felt very much, you know, we meet the the first cleaner uh, after he's been cut in half, but we get some of his tools and we get this idea of a cleaner, of an expert. And so now we're on our way to meet another expert uh, who is, I think, very much like and plays very much the same role as 
some of the experts did in Terrified. And she's going to have some very strange and inexplicable tools uh, that are also, it seems, going to be not terribly useful in the face of this supernatural evil that is being birthed into this world. Well, yes and no. I mean, she never gets a chance. And I mean, I don't think we ever get the the feeling that the, the bronze instruments and these arcane things that are necessary to purge the rotten in a way that will be efficacious and lasting. We never get the sense that it it's, doesn't work. Just they never get to use them because they get killed before they have the opportunity, right? Well, but that, again, like, I feel like you need better tools to get to the point where you can, you know, you needed, you needed another thing. Uh, also, John, I just want to say kudos on efficacious. That's, uh, oh, thank you. that's, a, that's a four-star word there, buddy. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling loquacious tonight. <laughs> Mike, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> I, I <laughs> so many four-syllable words. I've been dazzled. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Um I, I do find it interesting that uh, this specific uh, evil monster mythology, uh, you can't use uh, – it's, it's, it's a hard floor. You can't use a certain level of technology beyond – like electricity is bad, gunpowder is bad, uh, but they're defeated with another kind of technology that's like a 16th, maybe 17th century era – brass telescopes, you know, sextons, compasses, you know, kind of a deal. So but there's no electricity to it. Like it's right. not even hydraulic. Yeah. So I, I think, um, not, not to try to read Rugna's mind, but I think it might have something to do with chemical reactions. So it's like, uh, you know, electricity, you know, uh, there's an energetic reaction, uh, gunpowder chemical reaction. Whereas these things are very simple, like I, I presumably it's like you point the and and you know, what's wonderful is like they only show you the tools, they barely show them in actual use. So and and you never get like a successful like you know it's not like the Ghostbusters where like they, you know, when they go catch Slimer they walk you through the process of how these tool their tools work. Like they get like about a third of the way in, and the woman just gets murdered. So it's just like, all right, well, you, you know, it's left to the audience to guess like what the telescope thing does, or what this or that, you know, or how they even fit together. I have a mm. theory. I, I've spent enough time thinking about this that it you you see later that she has something that I think she means to stick like a sharp probish thing into the back of his neck, right? And maybe it needs to be like based on celestial or other measurements it has to be aligned perfectly to do that and so she's going to get this all of these things telling you almost like a like one of those like a protractor or one of those old-fashioned things where you have like a dial and you turn it and you align this and you align that axis and then it says this is where you enter the the back of the neck with this thing and that will that will be efficacious (laughs) Well, but it, it does go back to a lot of what we talked about with this film and with, with Rugna and with Terrified, right? He's not going to tell us any of that. Right. He's not going to give you I – mean, you do get her, I think, specifically saying, wait, we have to pierce the back of his skull with this thing. But then, like, what's all the other shit? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you've yeah. got the brass spike that you need to pierce his skull with, what's on the tripod? 
Well, I, not- I had the feeling the tripod would have this like uh, dish type thing, like a flat surface that would almost have like numbers on it or something. And it would, you would turn that and it would line with something else and you would get some kind of, you know, I, I keep thinking astrological or, or, you know, along those lines. Yeah. But, but if you got the two things lined up, it would tell you, you know, the answer that you needed. But that's just from looking at the pieces of the, of the that's, apparatus. That's certainly possible. Uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't give us that. I just no, think no. like, I, I legitimately think that Ragnar just has a notebook like Guillermo del Toro where he's just sketching out shit. Oh, look, what, what, what is this? This looks kind of cool. Like he's just made up all these cool tools for catching, uh, uh, interdimensional ghosts and terrified and rotten people in, you know, the, where, when evil lurks, like he's just got this stuff and he's like, this is going to look cool. Uh, Let me make a prediction. Twenty years from now, or five years from now, we'll get a. Well, we don't get Blu-ray special editions that much anymore. But I want to see the making of where whoever the the prop master, like who designed those things, like what were you thinking? What were you going for? How much did you talk to Damien Damien yeah. Rugna? You know, like what was the idea for these? Did you design what it will look like when it was all assembled that we never see? You know, that kind of thing. I would love to but, find that out. I will say, I'm going to put this question to you two, because this was really what I came away from it with. I feel that Ragna is skeptical of the experts in his movies. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then again, skeptical <clears throat> of experts implies he's telling us, pointing at someone, this is who you should trust. But I don't think we ever get that. Yeah, because yep. I mean, if if you don't have these experts, like they're they're not lined up to be quacks, because it's like if you don't have these experts, like cleaners, or the people in Terrified, then who do you have? You don't have anybody. And uh, we, he has established that the clergy are so useless that they got thrown out of the country. Right. So it's like, but these guys, the cleaners, uh, they're efficacious to a certain degree. <laughs> but, uh, but it's it's become so. Uh, rarely used that it takes you have to call like a special number and like someone doesn't show up for like a year and like the the only other closer person is like you know she even describes herself as like kind of a fraud and you know uh, you know this that and everything else so well she's an ex fraud she's an ex fraud yeah then, then like we'll get to that but but then she and her husband actually found a true purpose and started actually doing meaningful shit but yeah we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I'm just saying, I think structurally watching this movie as a horror fan, you, you kind of want Merta to be Tangina from Poltergeist, you know, and she's not, she's not that. And the same way that you want, uh, the, you know, the ghost hunters in terrified to be the ghost hunters from the conjuring. And they're not They're They are up against something that is beyond them. I think. Uh, well, I, I think it's less about casting aspersions on experts or even the idea of expertise and more about making the evil something that actually is scary, unknowable, unsolvable. Because uh, you know, one of the kind of critiques that I have with like kind of the Conjuring type movies is you present like these cra- you know, uh, the evil, unknowable, metaphysical entities 
And it's like, oh, it's just a matter of like solving this riddle or or this puzzle. You put th- this thing into uh, you know, put X thing into Y slot and it's solved. Or you learn the demon's name and then you can cast a spell and da 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 da. It's very like regimented and and it's almost like yeah. The only problem is like just going through the motions almost literally. Whereas with this, it's like the best experts that they have are kind of guessing. And they have, like, as limited their tools as they have. And it's like, this is the best that we have. Because it's like, w- what are we dealing with? <laughs> We're dealing with demons. <laughs> it's, like, you know, yeah. it's not, you know, a chemical reaction. You know, it, it, it's not something that, that can be, you know, it's, it can only be barely studied and vaguely understood. Uh, even when they're driving uh, and the mom gives the little nursery rhyme with, like, the seven rules. You know, in I think in American film, like those seven rules would be like on a, a white text crawl over black. They would be like the super like, like that, that's kind of thing that used to make, you know, uh, creative execs tingle of like, oh, these rules and the seven rules. And, you know, the characters will always be talking about these rules and that, 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 that. And this is exactly how the movie is going to play out. It's like and then the seventh rule says, bah. And in this one, it's like it, the seven rules don't even come up uh, in conversation until halfway through the movie. And even then, they're they're kind of vague, and they only kind of sort of apply sometimes. And so it's like even when you have rules in place, they're not like ironclad. Like you know, by you know, if you give a pop tart to the Virgin Mary on Sunday, then the demon will go away. Well, that's you know. interesting because they're kind of presented in a way that's almost like. Candyman or something where well this is like the woman the grandma is talking about something she learned like she's pretty old so I'm not sure if it was when she was a child or she just when she was younger she heard the kids were were producing this but it's all just kind of urban legendy you know it's not like Moses wrote this and on tablets it was just this kind of evolved as what people think you have to do yeah. But it's all kind of weird superstition and conjecture. Yeah, that's kind of the thing. Is this adheres a little more closely to, say, The Exorcist, where it's like, you know, the rite of exorcism is the Catholic Church's, you know, it was presented as a Catholic Church's way to deal with demons. But even then, like, Marin is just like, it doesn't work all the time. It's really hard. It can take a long time. You know, that, 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 that. It's like, these are very imperfect tools. Because we're human beings dealing with like massive, unknowable metaphysical forces. So, uh, like, I, I I dig that. Um, you know, there is, you know, especially in like uh, you know American horror uh, filmmaking. Very often, there's like a, a lure to be like, oh, we have a demon in the house. What do we do? Oh, well, you have to take this. That you have to X and Y and Z. And if there's any subversion of expectation, it's very slight. It's, uh, oh, the demon actually tricked you into thinking it was this thing, but actually it's not. It's that thing, and you have to do the other thing instead. You know, and with these, it's like, you know, these are, we're like Neanderthals trying to figure out why lightning yeah. set a tree on fire. Where it's like, what? <laughs> you know, so we yeah, have like this loose little, we have our little trinkets and we have our little nursery rhymes. And it's like, that's, that's the extent of our arsenal against this evil which is deeply more terrifying to me 
I want to clarify something earlier. I, I tried to remember what the little girl said to the mom. Um, we were just talking about her getting smacked by the car. And um, now I, I have queued up Shudder. And for the rest of the way, I will be watching the movie as we go through it, which I think will help me be less um, inaccurate and rambling. Uh, but here is what she actually says. She says, dad will kill you. That's the first thing she says. And then she's, and then the mom says, what are you saying? And the little girl says, dad will come home in the car and boom. (laughs) And that's it. That's all she says. So good. Much better than I, I didn't do it justice. So, all right. I wanted to, I wanted to clear that up. All right. Well, actually, it's a couple weeks later now. Uh, we are breaking this one, as you can probably tell, listeners, into three pieces. And we're going to wrap it up on our third night with the last hour or so of the movie. And um, I will say that I, I, I didn't get a chance to see it again, which I'm, I'm very sad about because I've actually been editing our um, previous podcasts. But I, I've done a little more research, and I want to share that with everyone and throw it out to Mike and Vic. So Rotten Tomatoes had an audience rating on this movie with some podcasts that I listened to today in the 50s. Like, I was shocked. It came out of the gate with a critics rating of like 98%, which is still the critics rating today. But I'm I'm happy to report that now the audience rating is 81% fresh. So I, I guess the horror peeps came out and weighed in here. My initial feeling was, you know, maybe it's the folks that want the exposition to be spoon-fed to them who dislike the film. Or maybe it's the people who thought it was too expository. Because as I've said, I mean, some some people think that it's got too many rules and then breaks them. Or maybe it was just the people who thought it was too graphic and disturbing uh, for them. But uh, I, I'm very happy to to say that as of tonight, um, that that ratio is pretty darn impressive. And after f- more than five years for Terrified to build its well-deserved reputation, it's at 77% on the critics and 68% uh, from the audience. So... Uh, when evil lurks has already surpassed terrified. And it also kind of led me to check box office mojo, you know, for an update to see how the movie did. And it had a very brief North America release that netted less than $550,000 and the worldwide gross ended at 802. So that's not what we want, but I mean, as we all know, in the age of streaming, theatrical results aren't as important as they used to be. Uh, and again, for point of reference, Terrified got zero North American release, and it made 367000 internationally. That didn't hurt Demian Rugna's career. So, uh, by the way, Terrified is literally the fucking icon. If you don't have Shudder and you're just like checking it out and they're advertising the service, there's like one of three characters shown is that, you know, the the weird, bald, skinny dude who comes out from under the bed. So Shudder is selling itself with Terrified. And of course, Shudder co-produced this film. I don't know how much we talked about that, but they literally paid to make When Evil Lurks, part, at least partially. 
so all of that means something to me. And one other thing I wanted to note, uh, we were calling the brother Jaime. Um, I, I got that from Wikipedia. I, I will give some leeway to Jaime and Jimmy are probably the same name with translation issues, but um, other podcasts call him Jimmy and IMDb calls him Jimmy. I assume the subtitles call him Jimmy. So that might be confusing um, to people who listen to our previous work on this. So let's call him Jimmy from now on. <laughs> also, one other thing I learned from listening to podcasts uh, that I didn't know, at some point after Terrified, this script for When Evil Lurks won some kind of competition. And that helped Rugna secure financing for the film. And finally, Rugna's major influences, as it recounted in interviews that I, I haven't seen yet, were Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which I think is worth thinking about, mm. and, interestingly, Evil Dead. And I know, Mike, you said that you thought Rugna should direct the next Evil Dead film, yeah. and it's probably not an accident that, uh, that those things, that parallel, came to mind. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of that Rotten Tomato score, I, 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 it has been my experience, or, or at least my observation, that there is a portion of the general audience that does not like ambiguity. They react to it in the sense of, if, if I don't know exactly what's going on, thereby the movie is confusing because the movie is dumb. You know, yes. uh, the movie is uh, the the movie is incomplete in some way. It's it's bad, quote unquote. I, I remember when uh, the original Blair Witch came out, and uh, very polarizing film for I mean, especially for like you know general audience people. I mean, I'm talking about like and by general audience, I mean like non film school nerd type people. You know, just we, we call those normies. Yeah, uh, but. Because it was very, uh, it, it was a big release and very popular, and like in 1999, 2000, like uh, everyone was watching it, everyone was talking about it, and I, oh boy, I, I met so many people. I, I'm of course back in Chicago, you know, oh boy, the the Midwestern soul rebels against uh, ambiguity. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like it, the two major complaints was I didn't know what was going on, they didn't explain anything, and uh, you know, and and also the camera work. Oh, I got seasick watching the camera. Blah, blah, blah. You know, but, but if, um, I'm, if I'm confused, the movie has failed. Is the yeah, yeah, and because the idea being that like uh, bad movies are confusing, thereby all all movies that I am somewhat confused by are thereby bad. You know, and it's uh, it's a logic stream that kind of doesn't translate up and down. But uh, I, I, you know, and and ultimately, it's like. You know, that's got to be your cup of tea, man. It's like, uh, I don't mind. I, I kind of love ambiguity. I'm, I'm a huge Lovecraft guy. So I'm I'm all about, like, you know, the, the semi-explained, the shape in the shadows, the the inference of it. You know, I, I really enjoy, you know, uh, Lynch and Skinnamarink and Lovecraft and, you know, and films like this where it's just like, you know, you, you, it's to my mind, it's, it's interestingly enough, uh, more naturalistic storytelling because you're really going into this just as you would if you were there. Right. And I, and I, I love that kind of, kind of organic uh, experiential, like just grab the camera and go, you know, and I, I think more broadly, we could talk about like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it's just like, you know, that first film 
you know, there it isn't there. There's no exposition dump whatsoever outside of like, oh, my family used to have this house. Let's go check it out. You know, there's no like, oh, well, you know, the legend of the Sawyers, you know, back in the day, they used to work at a slaughterhouse and there was a big fire and, you know, that, that, that. And they lost their jobs. Yeah. And, and you never better watch out. Yeah, you better watch out or that, 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 that. And, see, and there's a little nursery rhyme that goes, Sawyer, Sawyer, better watch your ass. You're. It's like, you know, it's well, like, I, I don't, I don't want to on bullshit. like goosebumps or something. But yeah. like, to me, this is like, if you still want like kind of middle school, junior high, kind of entertainment yes that's what you want and then as hopefully you get more mature and sophisticated you you start to be much more intrigued by a mystery that you can't easily untangle it's also one of the reasons why i liked um j-horror back in the day when that was like the big thing and the the flavor in the aughts because like the grudge it's like the the rules are like if you go in this house you're fucked these ghosts are just gonna come and get you why oh because this guy went crazy and killed his wife and kid uh, to be fair uh vic mentioned this earlier because yeah. it did start with the opening crawl uh or a title card like with some expositional background it, it, but preparing. that's just so vague it, it's just it's like very vague. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. you know if something you know but like uh the ring even when you like crawl up it's the exposition of the ring it's like nonsensical it's just like yeah this girl girl is psychic and da, 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 da. and i i don't know if you guys Watched the Americanized, the American version of the Ring lately. Uh, it's been a couple of years, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's still a great movie in a lot of ways. But near the end, when Naomi Watts is in the cabin, and she's finally gotten to the inmost cave, so to speak, and uh, she doesn't know what to do, and like a, a thing full of beads spills out onto the floor and they form an arrow on the floor. Oh. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I was dying. I, I completely forgot that that was in there. Anyway, so anyway, the point being is like they literally have an arrow dig right. here. Yeah, and that's a good American movie. Go yeah. ahead, Vic. Uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say that if you think uh, The Conjuring is the bee's knees of horror films, this movie might not be up your alley. Yeah, I, that's the difference, I, I think, is you know the films that involve like the Warrens and, and all that is like they're, they're posited as the experts and they are experts. It's like these two characters, they show uh, like kooky shit is going on family is losing their mind they don't know what to do and these two characters show up and they know exactly what to do it's like all right here's what's going on and they're like exterminators and uh but not in like a funny ghostbusters kind of way that's it's just like a, this all right well you you have a type three demon and we have to figure out its name and then we do it along with these rights and then problem solved it's very cut and dried it's like they got like a, a tech manual from god well, that's uh, encouraging or, or uh, reassuring to certain audience demographics. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's also just very easy to follow. You know, right. it's like, oh, okay, if they if they do this thing, then the demons go away. Yeah, okay. it's like your fucking carburetor in your old car isn't yeah. working. Oh, yeah. well, I wish I knew somebody who knew how to fix that. Well, guess what? Here we are. We'll fix your goddamn carburetor. Right, and yeah. and you know, and then you're left to ask, well, how how is then this is scary? How is this horror? And the answer is uh, jump scares, you know, because right. so between the doing, a, you know, the presentation of, of problem A 
and the doing of Solution Z, uh, every once in a while the demon yells boo at the audience, and that's where the horror comes from. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I, I actually really enjoy those films because um, they're kind of a master class of creating jump scares with visuals. Um, and Juan kind of you know set the pace for that with the first movie. Where it's all about like you know the creation of anticipation with negative space, how the camera moves, you know uh, this thing happens, then this thing happens, then we're pushing in and boo. So, but there is no like real mystery outside of like Act One is like oh is there a ghost in my closet? Answer is yes. The Warrens show up and they're just like here's how we get the ghost out of their closet. Da 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 da. Well, Mike, we're here to talk about this movie. I know. Wait, I got I've got the transition. Are you ready? Yeah. Right. So uh, I think part of what appeals about something like The Conjuring is the answer is some combination of like Jesus and love and family. Right. Right. And there's something there is something reassuring about those answers to a big segment of the audience for those films. Try using Jesus, love and family against the demon in Winnie Fuller's. And see right, how far right. that gets you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is why I think is why it's so effective and why it's so scary. All right, picking picking the scene by scene back up. Um, it, this is really why I love having the movie playing in front of me because I get to throw at you guys. There's this incredible moment of eye contact that happens when he Pedro is in the car with his children and he looks out at his wife ex wife. Sabrina and she's got her daughter and they just stare at each other like for several seconds. And then he puts the car in gear and he doesn't get 10 feet before the new husband or boyfriend or whatever it is, you know, comes screaming in, in his car and, you know, destroys her. And it's, it's what I want to mention is like that they have this last moment of connection the 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 parents of the two mm-hmm. kids that are are in the car that he's leaving with. What do you guys make of that? Well, that connection certainly seems to to follow Pedro as the story goes on. So I do think that's an, an important moment. And the, by the way, the the little boy says, "Dad, what was that noise?" He doesn't appear to see it, but there's a shot clearly telling us that. Jair, the, the, the one that has uh, severe autism, is looking that way. So he witnesses it. I think it's just, it's just good character work uh, because they're, they're, you know, uh, with all the fighting and the yelling and everything else, it's also an acknowledgement that at one point in their lives, these people did fall in love and have children. You know, so it's like, uh, you know, there is, you know, with all of the drama, all yeah. the years that go by, there is still a connection between these two people on a very deep level. And uh, he also, in all likelihood, you know, uh, he's thinking this is the last time I'm ever going to see this woman because the evil is going to sweep up and kill her and that's going to be it. So, And then it happens a lot quicker than he might have thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a second later. <laughs> and then they, uh, they, they show leo the the husband like sort of seeming to come to his senses with his face in the airbag and he's you know all bloody and dazed and he looks over 
and he he watches he sees the daughter yay jumping around like what a wonderful thing just happened it's like christmas morning yeah it is uh, dark darkly comedic because it's uh, yeah. horrifying you know because it shows the mindset of the demons that are after these people but at the same time it's also pretty funny all right. So from there, uh, we follow the the car that he's stolen from his ex-wife as he pulls up to pick up his delightfully clueless mother, who he, he almost never really, I mean, to be fair, brings her into the loop of what's really going on. Um, but he picks her up and, yeah, uh, Jimmy, who we're calling Jimmy now, asks, like, what happened to Sabrina? And he doesn't even tell Jimmy right away. He's like, I don't, I don't know what happened. You know, he, he doesn't disclose it. And, uh, their mother is like happy, but immediately like suspicious. Like, don't the kids have school? Isn't this Sabrina's car? Like, what have you agreed with her? She asks a lot of questions and they just don't answer. You know, they just keep her in the dark. She says, did somebody die? (laughs) Even though someone did. Yeah. uh, Lots of people, actually. Yeah. And now this is one of the scenes that is, I think, where some folks think the movie, its first misstep. Because I I, I don't think anyone, and again, I've listened to several podcasts, and just obviously, through that incredible sequence that we've talked about at length, the complicated sequence with... him going to his ex-wife and the police and the driving around and all the chaos and the dog and yada, yada. Um, you have to be fucking blown away by this movie. Like there's no way you're not. And this is the first scene where it's like, okay, you have to kind of come to terms with the fact that we're going to have, we're going to slam the brakes and we're going to have an expositional scene. Now I think it's very naturalistic and motivated, Yeah. but, but this is where we start to get into the seven rules. And even though I, I do think it's interesting that we give the dialogue to the grandmother who it, for her, like it's, it, it is just a folk tale. It, it is just, you know, um, she, she's not taking it seriously as she's unspooling this. This is just her memory of what this, you know, information was. Yeah. But I think she, uh, relays it in a semi-serious manner, uh, in the sense that it's like I, it's not something that like is on the tip of her memory. It's something from like a long time ago, but it's not like uh, I'll, I'll never get the sense that like she doesn't believe in it. If that makes sense, it, it is like this classic beat where after this incredible sprint from moment one of the movie with gunshots in the darkness to finally, you know, getting the mom and hitting the road that we finally give the audience like kind of like a, you know, a, uh, a chance to take a breath. Yeah. And not only do you give the audience a chance to take a breath, but it also gives the audience a chance to kind of absorb everything that they've watched. Because if you have, you know, there, there are some films that try to go for like nonstop, like, you know, crank two, you know, kind of a right. thing where it, it's just like uh, Alex DeLarge, like ah, stuff happening. And when you don't have contours, then it just becomes mono. It, it becomes noise, you know, white noise is like stuff happening for 90 minutes. And then the end, 
And I, I agree. I, yeah. I think it would have been like a misstep if the whole movie was them just on the run right. and crazy I, shit happening like nonstop. Yeah, I mean, you still need moments like, you know, John McClane talking to Argyle, you know, uh, catch your breath, figure out what to do next, because it's not only the characters get a chance to kind of get a lull beat and get their shit together and think about it, but you also give the audience a chance to kind of catch up a little bit uh, and then gear them up for the next sequence. So well, it's smart, smart filmmaking. And it gra- I think it grounds the film, because what we're going to find is what they, they go to the you know, some store or gas station or something to look for ice cream. They don't have the right ice cream. And now all of a sudden you're confronted with the fact that you've escaped, right? You're alive. This was your goal. Like this is where poltergeist ends, you know? Right. And now you're out there. You don't have any money. Where are you yeah. going? You don't know where you're going. You don't have any money. How much gas do you have? How are you going to feed your kids? You know, it's, there's the, all the, the real life complications Rain back down on Pedro, I feel like, once he's gotten out of the life or death moment. And now it seems like this is the shit that he was bad at. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, it, it is. I, I he's back in like, dad mode. Yeah. I do like uh, the grounding of these kind of day-to-day problems because it does make it feel that much more like it's a natural disaster unfolding. Because now yeah. it's like, you know, uh, how do you get – you know, we don't have cash for McDonald's. You know, it's like uh, how do they we can't. Get... He can't literally pay for the apple ice cream. Yeah, right, yeah. he promised. Yeah, and then I mean, <laughs> and then you get you only get a moment's breath, and then he gets the call from Sabrina, right? Which is which is not again the 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 sort of life and death feeling. It's not like uh, the dog is. There's not hell raining down on you, but it's like. Yeah, you got away for now, but you're not you're not free. You're not yeah, not, yeah. not there, gone from this. There, there's a momentary uh, respite. There's a momentary escape, but the evil still has his number. It can still it's, reach out. Yeah. Still yeah. is still on its it way. Knows where you yeah. are. Yeah, and, right. I mean, and then he smashes his phone, which I uh, well, hold on. on the one hand understand, but on the other hand, leaves you in uh, another world of isolation. Right, right. right yeah. Okay, let's not get to the call just yet because I, I think the grandma scene in this car is still, you know, there may be something that we want to discuss. Fuck you, John. Nobody wants to talk about grandma. <laughs> <laughs> She's a total gilf, man. Come on. <laughs> Jesus Christ, John. That was more horrifying than anything in this movie. Um, Mike's, so, not, Mike's not laughing. I'm concerned. If that's your kink, dude, I do not want to kink shame you. <laughs> I, was, I was belching. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Jimmy asks, okay, well, first off, before I say what Jimmy asks grandma or his mother, obviously, I, I want to somewhat clarify and watching the scene again, like they are saying, mom, this is real, but they don't get into specifics. Like they don't say what they saw, but um, but she's kind of pushing back like, well, you don't know what you really saw. You know, you don't really know because she doesn't realize the in- insanity that they just left. So then Jimmy asks, uh, do you know someone who saw a possessed one to his mother? And she says, no, never. Uh, I don't except you two. 
<laughs> you're making a fuss and she's toying with the necklace so that we remember the necklace. Uh, and the little boy says, grandma, what's a possessed one. And then, you know, she starts to try to translate this into children's terms. And she says it goes into a person's body and uses it to be born, which obviously is dead on. And uh, to tie into something that Mike's been talking about the whole time, the little boy says, like a disease. And uh, grandma says, doesn't answer that, or at least in the translation. And then she says, there's a song. Do you know it? It's famous. (laughs) It's a terrible song, obviously. I mean, like no musical. Maybe in Spanish it rhymes and shit, but... But but one of the points that they make is uh, they take what's most valuable in your life and your body is uh, no longer your body. And I, I think that taking what is most valuable in your life, we've seen that in some other possession movies. But, I mean, I, I don't know how much – I don't think we really specifically drilled into this before. But, like, the idea that the the second that the husband is possessed because he shot the dog who killed – their daughter, the first thing he's going to do is go back and kill his wife. You know, that's the way this evil works. It will, it will find what you care about. And I think that that will come up along the way in different contexts in the sense that like Pedro's love for his children is actually the beacon that draws the evil and makes him vulnerable and makes them vulnerable. Yeah, it, it also has like kind of an affinity for children too. Uh, it likes to go after well, kids for it. You know. Well, it manipulates the kids, and I, I think that if you follow, if you really look at the whole movie, this movie is all about children and how we don't do right by them, and how that sort of lack of care or whatever makes them vulnerable to both the seduction of evil and just the destruction of evil, because that's what happens to Santino. Well, I mean, he tries really hard. His entire goal is to save his children. And even though he's not like, you know, father of the year, clearly uh, he's trying his level best. That is his entire motivation, his entire goal. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't look at the third act of this film seeing it as an indictment of the job that the parents were doing when they turn into who can kill a child. I, I, I think that I, it is very much about children in the sense that um, they are the most valuable thing that you have. And if this uh, in your life and if this evil is going to really fuck with you, it's going to go after your kids. And I, and that loops all the way back around to the original exorcist, man. And, uh, you know, as I've said, and, other podcasts, right. uh, the original Exorcist is at core a story of a mom trying to take care of her sick daughter. Yeah, well, this uh, is much more complicated than that. Much, yeah, much I mean, more, more but it is like, it, you know, it goes after the kids because I perhaps they're uh, weaker of minds, more gullible, younger, so more innocent souls, X, Y, Z. But it also goes after the kids because, it, oh boy, there's nothing else that's going to fuck with the adults. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it's a total oversimplification, but Martha says evil likes kids and kids like evil. But I think there's so much wisdom yeah. or insight in that simple statement. Yeah, I, I, I think that there is something kind of interesting about you know kids like evil because uh, it's fun, it's seductive, and also like kids are just cruel. 
and in like almost like a, a, a gleeful demonic kind you, of way. You don't have your moral code really defined yet. Sometimes, right. yeah. As a kid. yeah, yeah. So like the demons here are not sophisticated entities. They just really like to fuck with you, and there is like a, almost like a childishness to it. That's reminiscent of uh, the Deadites and the Kandarian demons and Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah like, I agree. We're gonna get you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. John, I was gonna, yeah. I was gonna bring up Merta's line, but I was like, is John gonna be mad at me for skipping ahead? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say it. And then you said it, so fuck you. <laughs> I mean, yes, technically, uh, you're right. I, I violated <laughs> yeah, John, the first rule. Slow down, okay? We haven't gotten there yet, all right? <laughs> well, um, we were literally talking about children, but yes. So we've talked about the seven rules, but the the one thing we'll we'll mention here is that uh, one of them will be saved for later because grandma doesn't remember the seventh rule and maybe we'll double back for that when it comes up. Never uh, date a woman with a tattoo of a knife. That's a good rule. That is a good rule. That's the seventh rule. <laughs> uh, the, I guess the only other notable thing about this scene is she says, don't name the uh, demons. And then of course, you know, proceeds to name the demons but the uh the boy <laughs> that, that, that with, made me laugh as well yeah yeah definitely <laughs> and the, the 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 sons are just like oh, mom stop naming the demons <laughs> you know, it's like this very relatable kind of reaction <laughs> it's the on the even day <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a, honestly it's a fascinating bit of world building which is the thing that i'm increasingly impressed with in this film because as we talked about mom is the one who kind of vaguely remembers this stuff and she's even she's sort of skeptical. But so it's now we know, OK, the stuff that happened, like it was a big deal a long time ago. And it's kind of petered out. And now no one really talks about it. The kids don't even know the song and the rules. And just the fact that they've given this information to mom and let her be the one to relay it, uh, I think, tells us a lot about the world that. Rugna has just thrown us into again without any screen call uh, screen crawls without any rules he's giving us information in all these really clever intelligent ways and just trusting us to play catch up well the implication of it is that nobody is like on high alert and and we have discussed this before um, but the idea that like, if this was six months ago, everybody would be like, Oh my God. All right. What do we do? All right. I know what to do. This is super serious, but everyone's kind of like, you know, well, I'm, uh, this was a thing. Gosh, I'd rather not have to deal with it again. Are you serious? Is it really back? You know, that, that whole kind of apathy or like, for instance, like I, we talked about COVID several times. Yeah. Like if, if COVID came roaring back with some new variant, wouldn't the three of us and most people's reaction be kind of like, Oh Jesus Christ. Well, I, Seriously? I, I heard that. I, like I, I, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, like I'm fighting off like a little bit of a cold right now. Yeah. And, uh, it, due to the fact that it's 2024 versus 2021, I get to just kind of have a cold now. You know, if I sneeze, it's not a fucking federal case. <laughs> it's like, because <laughs> it's but, like, okay, let's just say for the sake of argument, like the new variant is actually, I mean, somewhat, this, this doesn't entirely logically make sense, but go with me is really lethal, but we would initially just be like, fuck this man. No, you know, like you're saying that, but really, you know, like we would be very resistant. Whereas when it first came out, we'd be like, 
I'm not fucking bringing groceries into the house. Right. Yeah. I think I think the better metaphor would be like, what if one of your neighbors got polio? Right. And you were like, you what do we? What do we? Yeah. What do we? What, wait. Polio? Really? Come on. Nobody gets polio anymore. And then your grandparents would be like, no, listen, if somebody's got polio, polio, you have to burn your socks and wear an onion on your belt. And, you know, you're right. You're right. right. That's that's right. You're you're absolutely right. It's like something that we think of, like people in the Depression dealt with or something. Yeah. 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 The uh, the demon names thing. I just wanted to mention that after she names the demon names, the boy with autism starts saying Azrael, which is one of the demon names. Right. So it's entirely possible that that's what we're dealing with in this movie is Azrael. And is is that the moment when he gets possessed? I would say Ooh. yes. Yeah. And or when he looked out the window and saw his mother getting mowed down. Let's get there. Yeah. Well, no, okay. we saw that already. No, no, like no, no that, sorry. I was thinking of a different moment. Please. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I'm glad I'm watching this now as we talk because I wouldn't have picked that up. But yeah, I think he may have been possessed because he's the one that saw his mother die. And I, I would have to say one uh, uh, in a film full of absolutely fascinating ideas. This idea of this kid getting possessed is by a hundred percent fresh. Really interesting. Really interesting stuff. And we'll get into that more later. I mean, yeah. wow, yeah, yeah, it's really intriguing. So they go to the gas station, as we've covered, like, they don't have Apple! <laughs> and he doesn't even have enough money anyway! And, um, like, Grandma is like, you didn't ask me to bring money. <laughs> I thought you were paying. It's all just very good and natural and real. And the little boy's already, I want to go home! <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's all falling apart on every level and Jimmy's wincing and um you know grimacing and and, and how are we going to eat <laughs> so it's getting real now and then Pedro goes on this long rant about where's the fucking apple ice cream yeah uh, and yeah the Jair is going nuts and grandma's like, well, let's just go back to town where we just left and buy ice cream. And she, she doesn't know where they left and why they can't go back. And, you know, Pedro, this is where Pedro is really melting down. He realizes that I think Jimmy still has the phone. He's like, why didn't you leave that? We we're supposed to leave everything behind. And he goes, it's mine. Like, that's why he hung on to the phone. And then, what do you know? Sabrina's calling mm-hmm. like, you know, the phone that he brought that he had with him that he didn't get rid of. Carried that's the, the, that's the, the conduit. Easy up the conduit. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, and we'll get to, I, I learned one of the things I learned that I haven't touched on um, since we last covered this is how Sabrina finds them, where they go next. And and it is all logical. It all fits into the mythology, but we'll hold off on that. So yeah, this is the phone call that we've been talking about. And and Pedro's like, it can't be her. Santino's like, I want to talk to her. And he's like, no, <laughs> you are not talking to your mother right now. <laughs> he knows what happened to mom. So he gets out of the car. Oh man, the movie is just so well shot. When you're When you're watching it, like just the the use of Steadicam is so immediate, and but yet widescreen, like the compositions are just great. Um, 
So he he finally is like he puts the phone to his ear and he's like, Hello. He knows he's talking to a dead woman. And she says, You took my children. I want them back. And and she starts out making like arguments that seem like it would be a real person. Jair needs his medicine. You have to bring him back. You know, yeah. like logical, you know, she's not playing the demon card just yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know? Which is that much more taunting because yeah. it's I know that you know that I know that you know, but I'm still going to go through this process just <laughs> yeah. to fuck with you. Right. <laughs> yeah, like she knows he saw. Right. And then, but you know, and then she gets into you know cheating on him, and she says that's why I fucked everyone, which may or may not be true, but it's a good thing for the demon to say. Yeah. Uh, but we do know she probably fucked one other person, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, uh, yeah. Yeah. She says, you gave me a broken kid. That fucked yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. You wanted to get rid of him. I mean, yeah, just like if you just if you think about the demon and the exorcist. I mean, that this mm. is this is an entity that knows your, your, your weaknesses. It knows. Yeah the things that are going to hurt the most and it's going to hurt you as badly as it possibly can through a telephone. What could I say that would just, that would just cause as much pain as possible? Yeah. Mirtha suggests later that either she was possessed, but could fight it off or it just read her mind. Mm-hmm. But one of the concepts in this movie is that the evil, if nothing else, it can read your mind, figure out what's important to you and then use it against you. Yeah. Even if you're not full on possessed, he's trying to, you know, play tough and, you know, Sabrina, I saw you die and you don't know what I'm capable of. And and she says, I'll get my kids. And then he smashed. This is where he smashes the phone. Um, and, and, and one of the arguments for uh, Jimmy, like I, I was really talking shit about Jimmy last time, but he does like come up to his brother, Pedro, and like. Pedro's going to pieces after this phone call and he admits what happened. He tells Sabrina was dead. Um, he tells Jimmy cause Jimmy didn't see it. And Jimmy kind of like coaches him up, like tries to get him going again. Cause he's a wreck. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I didn't give him enough credit for that initially. He's a, he's a good, he's a good brother. Yeah. He clearly loves Pedro and, Will do sort of anything to support him. I mean, he shouldn't have brought the fucking phone, Fredo. But or the know. bullets that I talked yeah. about last time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we were we were joking. Yeah, the Fredo thing. Like you know, that's all fun and games. But like I said last time, he never consciously betrays his brother. So yeah. it's not really fair to call him that, even if he's not that smart. <laughs> well, and we'll see about consciously betraying his brother. But continue. Okay, well, right. I, I want to yeah. see if you if you make that point, I'll I'll certainly entertain it. Uh, but here, Pedro says, like, we took the evil to her. Like here, he's taking responsibility. At least in his own mind, he's saying he's drawing the line between going there and what happened, and acknowledging that very possibly it was his clothes that obviously the dog, you know, sniffed and so on. And we kind of touched on this before if he didn't take the evil to them, at least they would have survived longer, you know, mm-hmm. than, than what happened. And he says to his brother, Pedro says, we should have left as soon as we knew. 
I should have never come back to this town. So he's now carrying the guilt of that decision to go get his kids. Yeah, I mean, how could he not, though? I mean, it is like one of the more better written, multi-layered aspects of the script and the characters and everything else that, you know, he's acknowledging that uh, this woman is in a very direct way dead because he showed up at her front door with carrying this problem with him. He let he, he walked in there with COVID, you know, but it's like, right. what but what else is he supposed to do if he knows that this infection is spreading and, and his kids are in the way? They might have gotten it anyway. How do you not try to get your kids out of there? You mm-hmm. can't. You have to do this awful thing. And people ha- and, and you try to do it in such a way that people aren't going to die. He did try to talk them into coming with and they didn't. So in a weird way, it's like. Uh, we can't a hundred percent fault them because I, again, this evil is very vague and background and old school and that's that to that. So we and he has zero credibility. Yeah. He has we zero. understand why they don't go with him. So it's not like we're like, ha ha, you, you dumb people, burr, you know, it's not like that, but we also understand how the demon would get its fingernails into that guilt. So it does make a lot of sense. It's very smart writing. It's good. But Jimmy, but Jimmy says, you know, don't say that. I'm proud of you. You know, he, he really tries to rally the troops here. Come on, brother. The kids are watching. You know, they'll get scared. Let's go. And then Pedro's like, you didn't see what I saw. And Jimmy's just like, come on. This is a big moment for Jimmy, and I didn't give him enough credit for this. I, I really didn't. Um, and he says, I know someone that may be of help, which is obviously, you know, Murta, which is huge. Jimmy brings them this close to preventing the apocalypse. Okay, I'm going to end this episode right there so we can put it in your ears. We hope you'll be back for part three as the March Madmen wrap up our insanely thorough examination of when evil lurks. Until then, adios.